All right, all right, all right. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Long Lens Podcast. This is the filmmaking podcast where I answer your questions and just talk about YouTube and filmmaking. So this is going to be another one of our monthly Q&A episodes. So every month I do an ask on Patreon, YouTube, and sometimes even Instagram for questions. And you send them in and then I answer them to the best of my abilities. So we have a good load of questions for this month's Q&A episode. And as always, the Patreon questions are going to get answered first. And I talk about this a lot, but if you would like to support this podcast, support my channel, then you can join me on Patreon. You'll get a bunch of bonus stuff. You'll get all of my $5 LUTs for free. And when you ask a question on Patreon, you get it answered on the podcast first and you get a little bit of a shout out. So before we get started, I thought I would just kind of paint you a little picture of what it looks like while I'm recording. I'm in a mostly empty apartment sitting on a folding camp chair with my dog licking his paw and I'm just kind of using a TV tray to prop up my laptop and I'm actually recording this into my laptop, which I think this is the first time I've ever done that. So yeah, this is a pretty crusty podcast setup, but yeah, I just thought I would do one last podcast episode in this apartment that I've been in for the last 14 months. It's not been the best place that I've ever lived, that's for sure, but it's worked. And for the past 14 months, I've been able to live here pretty comfortably, but I am very excited to be moving back to Oregon soon. I'm gonna be moving back into a house, which I'm super stoked on. I'll have my own office again. So that's just gonna be rad. So let's just get into the questions. We have three questions and they're all from Ivan Martinek or Martinek. Hopefully one of those pronunciations is right. First question that Ivan has is, what is your editing sequence? Do you color grade or sound design first? Do you do it as you go or in the end? So yeah, the way that I typically go about things is I cut everything first. I don't worry about color grading or doing any sound design. I cut all of my sequence to how I like it. And then typically I will add the music or the sound effects. So I get all that stuff done because that's all very, it's not really intensive on your editing system. Once you start adding layers and adjustment layers and stuff like that, that's when you're going to start noticing a lot of like slowdown. So I try not to like do any color or any like like animations like during the edit because I don't want to slow myself down. But yeah, I just cut everything, do the music and sound design next. Kevin, you're getting in my audio. And then I'll add my color grade and all of like the animations and you know title sequences and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, that's usually how I do it. I you know I kind of figure out the pacing of the edit kind of as I go. It really does depend on like the music track that I'm, you know, using or the the tone that I want the video to have, which sometimes I, you know, I'll try to make sure I have that established before I even start filming. But uh, yeah, that's basically my sequence is cut, music, sound design, color grade, titles, effects, export. All right, the next question from Ivan Martinek is, Top three tips for beginning wedding videographers. Yes, so my top three tips. Well, the first one would be try to get to know your couple as much as you possibly can before you actually get there on the wedding day. So make sure that you know, you've know you met up with them prior at like a coffee shop or something like that. Even if you're not really like giving them any new information, like what I always used to do was I would always meet up with my couples and have them sign my little wedding agreement. And the wedding agreement, they could have just, you know, 
downloaded and printed off and signed and just dropped off at my house or something like that. But that's not, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to actually meet them, kind of see what their vibe is and, you know, try to, you know, get familiar with them a little bit so that it doesn't feel weird on their wedding day when you're, you know, in their space and, you know, trying to get these intimate shots and stuff like that. So that's my first tip is just get to know your couple. Well, second is get to know the photographer. So reach out to the photographer, heck, even meet up with the photographer as well. Like just, you know, meet up for coffee. I used to do that a lot. I still have friends who are in the wedding photography business that I have met through doing weddings back in the day, but just getting to know your photographer. So you don't have to do this really awkward, you know, first meet on the day of a lot of people don't have time to meet up for coffee, but just at least reach out in an email, reach out on Instagram so that they kind of know who you are and you're going to be working with them pretty closely throughout the wedding day. So that would be my second tip is to get to know the photographer. And the third one is bring help if you can. Like I used to, you know, pay my, my brother sometimes just to come and do nothing else, but just stand with the tripod camera. Cause I would always have a tripod camera, like shooting right down the aisle. as like my safety. And then I'd be running around the, the auditorium, you know, picking off different shots. But sometimes you, you don't know for sure if that down the aisle camera is, is rolling or if someone got in the way. So all I did was I would, you know, I like I would bring my brother, you know, I'd pay him a little bit and say, Hey, listen, all I need you to do is just stand with this tripod camera. And if someone gets in the way, move it or ask them to move. Or if it stops recording, make sure you start it again. And just having that peace of mind is so important, like on the wedding day, because even if for some reason you miss the kiss with your A cam, chances are your B cam will have caught it. And that's definitely saved my bacon multiple times. So yeah, bring on a friend or an intern that you can pay a little bit, you know, someone who's just trying to get into the wedding industry as well. Bring someone that you can, you know, kind of have like a little bit of a fallback on because that really, really helps. Okay, so the next and last from Ivan Martinek is any tips on budget text animation plugins? Yeah, so I actually use the Matty Hapoya text animation plugin that he sells for Premiere Pro. I use that a lot. I don't use the font that he uses. I have my own font just to kind of make it my own, but I like that one. I use that for a lot of my text animations. If you buy it, you'll notice that like, oh yeah, Nigel uses this one. Someone else who makes really good text and title animations for both Premiere and DaVinci is Spencer Torok or Torok. But yeah, I think his YouTube channel is just Spencer, like you know, spelt the normal way, S-P-E-N-C-E-R. He, I think his website is called The Creative Herd, and I may have mentioned that on this podcast before, but he makes really good looking plugins, and I use those as well. He actually reached out to me and like sent me a code so that I could check those out, and I've been using a lot of his animations for like the little arrows that you see in my videos, so I highly, highly recommend Spencer Turok go to the creative herd. He has a lot of really well-priced plugins and title packs and animations and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, Matty Hapoyas are good, but I would definitely say instead of supporting Matty Hapoya, who, you know, has plenty of, you know, support, go and support Spencer Turok. I'll try to leave his link in the show notes of this video. All right. And that is all for Patreon. Thank you very much to Ivan Martinek for sending out those questions. And now we're going to go into the YouTube community page. And funny enough, I think there is one of my Patreon supporters who actually asked me a bunch of questions on YouTube as well. And maybe they just forgot to actually ask it on 
Patreon, but Andrew Mulcaster, which on Patreon, Andrew supports me and his, his name on Patreon is Andy Mulcaster. So pretty sure this is the same person, but Andrew has four questions actually on the YouTube community page. And the first one is, I was recently listening to a podcast on creativity. Often the dilemma is being a creative is that we come across weird, different, awkward. I was struck by a point that was made. If you're creative, show me what you've created. It struck me that our creative process is to produce something, to actually be recognized and valid as being creative. Do you have any words of wisdom to add to focusing creativity to being productive or what works for your process? I don't necessarily think that to be creative, you actually have to be constantly producing things. I know a lot of very creative people who make content once or twice a year. It doesn't mean that they're not creative if, you know, if they're not producing anything. And there definitely is a culture on YouTube of like that, you know, work hard, hustle culture, you know, like I saw a lot of people getting that Casey Neistat tattoo that it read work hard when you put it up to the mirror. And that's all fine and dandy if you just want to work hard and, you know, produce a lot. But a lot of people, including myself, just aren't wired that way. So if you are a creative person, don't feel bad if you're not constantly producing stuff. I got into the grind of like being more obsessed with putting out content than actually liking the content that I put out. And so that's where I'm trying to like shift my perspective is I want to actually be stoked on what I make and not worry so much about how much I make. Now that can kind of hit you in the wallet really quickly, but that's where like that's the balance that I'm trying to achieve. Next question that Andrew Mulcaster asks is who is currently inspiring you in a creative way to try something new? You know, I think one of my biggest inspirations right now is just someone who kind of just like throws caution to the wind when it comes to making YouTube videos. And he just like, he has two channels. One of them is a little bit more serious, but the other one is just him like venting and just making whatever the heck he wants. And that's Patrick Tomaso. Like Patrick is the type of person that like is insanely creative. It has a really good thought process and a like a lot of creativity, but he just doesn't give a crap about, you know, producing a bunch or, you know, trying to get like internet fame. And that's kind of, I feel like I'm kind of leaning towards that mindset too. Yeah, Patrick Tommaso is one of my favorite YouTubers, to be honest. And the next question from Andrew Mulcaster is, how do you overcome procrastination? I find I get gas, which is gear acquisition syndrome, and then lose so much time in YouTube eBay rabbit holes trying to find something to make things better when I actually just need to focus and apply myself. Wow, Andrew, you are preaching to the choir because that's where I was like, you know, five or six years ago. All I like, like I would put off making a YouTube video until I had a perfect piece of gear that would like, you know, make my my videos like 10% better or I would put off trying to work on a project. Like I remember not wanting to film a YouTube video for somebody because I didn't have the lens that I think that I would need to make it look good. That's such a poor mindset to be in because now I'm in like the mindset of like, I'm just gonna create whatever I wanna create and there's nothing that can stop me because I have all the tools in my brain basically that like I need to create something that I want, right? And like, if it's any consolation, like I, I'm using two GH3s with pretty cheap lenses and I'm making YouTube videos and I'm a YouTuber. So forget about getting all the greatest gear. You don't need it. It's completely pointless. It is really important to you when you're like first starting out because you think that that's going to be like the end all be all for like your career. 
but I'm just here to reiterate it's not. So don't worry too much about your gear. I know it's super cliche, but just go out and make something because the act of creating something is what's going to actually cause you to get better. And that's, what's going to improve you, not any gear that you buy. Okay, last question from Andrew Mulcaster is, what would you recommend for those of us who are amateurs and haven't done film school, media, etc.? Where can I find secondhand film school? For example, I recently came across Darren Mortson for Resolve Tutorials who made me color space aware and some good explanations over 8-bit and 10-bit footage. Well, I mean, you kind of just said it right there, like go to YouTube film school. Like YouTube has literally all the technical information that you could ever want as far as like learning your camera, learning a editing software. There are going to be a bunch of people that are going to try to sell you courses, which some of those courses are really good and they're probably a lot more specific to teaching you something. Be very cautious about what course you take. So I've known a lot of people that have taken those courses and they're just like, yeah, I kind of feel like I could have like learned most of this on YouTube and you can, you just have to siphon through it a little bit more. So those courses are nice if you just want all that information and, you know, no fluff. But if you're willing to like scrub through the fluff, you can get all the technical information that you need on YouTube. So that's what I would recommend because that's how I learned. I mean, I had hands-on experience, you know, like interning and assisting and, you know, assistant camera operating for people. But if you don't have those opportunities, learn what you can on YouTube and then go out and try to make stuff yourself. Thank you, Andrew Mulcaster, for all those questions, and hopefully those were some decent answers for you. All right, now the rest of the questions I will not be reading the names of because none of the rest of these people support me on Patreon. <laughs> all right, so the next question from the YouTube community page is, I would love to hear your take on camera movement, as I've always liked your style of using static shots, but having something in the frame move, and since Casey Neistat was recently interviewed and mentioned how much he doesn't like camera movement either, I would love to hear you talk more about this too. So yeah, don't take anything that I say or Casey Neistat for that matter as like the end all be all. Casey doesn't like camera movement for probably the same reasons that I don't like camera movement it's just because when you're just trying to talk to camera you don't really need it to move and if you have too much controlled movement that can seem a little bit too pro to where it's like I'm trying to sell you something but if it's too sporadic it's hard to watch so that's why just a static camera with a nice composition works so well for, you know, Casey's and my own videos. But I think that camera movement can help you tell a story too. And that interview that you're talking about, I remember him talking about like, you know, he will pick up the camera and take it close to his face when it's a like important thing that he's trying to tell you, or if it's like an intimate moment. So you just have to figure out when it's appropriate to move your camera, when it's appropriate to hold it, as opposed to putting it on a gimbal or on a slider or something like that. So it's not that I don't like camera movement. I like, I really do, but it's just for YouTube videos. I think that a nice composition, pleasingly lit video is far more important than just moving your camera all the time. All right. Next question is thinking of the GX eight as my first camera, any thoughts or advice? Honestly, I wouldn't go the GX eight route myself just because there's a bunch of little quirks about it. Sure. It has that flip out screen, just like a GH4, but it has a 2.5 millimeter mic jack. I'm pretty sure, which is weird. You have to get an adapter. It doesn't have vlog. Uh, it might have Cine D, but Cine D isn't great. And it's just, I don't know. It's just kind of like a G85, but in like a weird body. So I'd rather just get the G85. That's more built to be a, a video camera as opposed to the GX8. So that's my opinion. Next question is your thoughts on the Canon M50. Is it still good for YouTube? I mean, it's perfectly fine. It's not my choice for YouTube, but 
you can still totally use it. My buddy Andrew Nepper still uses an M50, I believe. And I think he just got an M6, a Canon M6. But yeah, he likes them and they, you know, they, they look decent. I definitely think that you need to like export it in 4K and then upload it into YouTube. Export your 1080p into 4K and that'll trick YouTube to not compress it as much so it'll look a little sharper. But yeah, I mean, it's still a perfectly fine camera. I just, in my opinion, I think that there are better cameras in that price range unless you need autofocus. If you need autofocus, go with the M50. But I would say like the G85 is a better looking image for that price. All right, next is I'm planning on shooting a music video for some friends soon. And I wanted to know if I should have it like a short film or just record the actual singing. If you're meaning like a live recording versus like a music video, it's really hard to like tell you what to do. It kind of depends on what the band wants. I've done a, you know, like a few live recordings where I just, you know, the, the musician and I will just go out somewhere and we'll film like a live recording of them singing their song. So yeah, I mean, it just kind of depends on what the band wants. As far as like, if it's a short film or something like that, you really have to discuss that with the band and figure out something cool to do. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't do that many sh like uh, music videos, so I can't really speak to that that much. All right, next question is, if you start getting into more client work, what projects are you trying to film and focus on niche-wise? Yeah, so I am trying to get back into client work again. I think the nice thing about being a YouTuber is since I have passive income, I don't have to like just take any job that comes at me. So I can be a little bit more picky with what client work I wanna do, but I really like commercials, especially for like smaller brands. Just like not needing a huge team. I think like a team of five people is like perfect for me. So like me working the camera, somebody else on audio, somebody else on like, you know, like set decoration and then like a director or producer or something like that, that would be perfect. Like just small crew makes stuff that looks cool. That's the type of stuff that I wanna do. I don't really have any like big aspirations to be like the next, you know, Apple cinematographer or something like that. Hopefully in the future, maybe, but right now I just kinda wanna keep things a little bit more low key. All right, and the last question from the YouTube community page is, how does a filmmaker get over imposter syndrome? Well, you grow out of it, I think. I think that you will eventually grow out of imposter syndrome. Not completely, but like, if you think of people like Roger Deakins, I don't think that he shows up on set with imposter syndrome anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I think that you grow out of it. Like, I don't think I have as much imposter syndrome as I did, you know, two or three years ago. But, you know, I definitely, like, I shot a little short film with my buddy Sean, and I was the gaffer on that, and I've never actually, like, gaffed for an actual short. And my buddy Sean, he was in a Hulu show, he was in The Sun, and he was in a show called The Chosen, and then a lot of his actor friends who were the extras you know, some of them have been in like, you know, like a Netflix series. This this one guy there was in Better Call Saul. So I like I was around a lot of like quote unquote industry like professionals. So I did get a little bit of like of imposter syndrome because I've never actually like gaffed with people that have Hollywood experience, you know, or like actual onset experience. So I was always like throughout that whole day that I was, you know, setting up lights and stuff. I'm just like, man, I really hope I'm like doing stuff right. But it ended up turning out just fine. And it was a little bit more of like a, like it, it boosted my confidence a little bit. It's like, okay, I'm not a complete idiot. You know what I mean? Like I kind of know what I'm doing. So yeah, you get over imposter syndrome eventually. Uh, it's just like, you know, with anything, if you suck at basketball at first, then you're probably really like awkward when you go to like your first basketball game or something or same thing with skateboarding. You go to your first skate park and you suck and you feel awkward. But as you get better, you don't feel that anymore. So 
yeah, those are all the questions from the YouTube community page. And I'm going to go to Instagram where I actually got a few bonus questions. First question is, which role in filmmaking do you like most? Example, set design, color grading. Well, I really like camera operation. I love I like actually holding the camera and operating it. I love doing that. The next thing I like doing is lighting stuff. I think that that's insanely fun. Third thing I'll say is I really like the color grading process because there's just something really, really satisfying about taking an image that looks you know bad to the normal person because it looks kind of flat and washed out, but then just massaging it into looking really, really nice and rich. That's one of the the best feelings ever is just taking something that looks bad and making it good. And you get that really easily and quickly when you color grade your stuff. So yeah, those are the roles that I like. Next up is thoughts on the GH5. Would you use this as your go-to camera? Absolutely. GH5 is the goat. Again, if that camera had decent autofocus at even the, like the Fuji X-T3 level, that would have been the most popular camera when it was released, but it didn't. Autofocus sucked. A lot of people didn't care. I still don't really care that much. I use a GH3, so yeah, GH5 is great. Next question is, can you create a full frame with an APS-C camera? Well, like a full frame look? The answer is, yeah, you can create a full frame look if you get a speed booster and put it on an APS-C camera, then you'll effectively get a full frame field of view. It won't actually be a full frame sensor. Like, you know, putting a speed booster on an APS-C camera is not the same as having an actual full frame camera because full frame cameras, like the pixel density is different. The, the low light is totally different. So it's not the same, but you'll get the same field of view and the same like out of focus characteristics that you would with a full frame camera. All right, the next question is, there's a speculation that the movie The Creator was filmed on the FX3. Is it a genuine choice or marketing? So yes, the film The Creator was filmed on the FX3. The director Gareth Edwards and cinematographer Greg Frazier, I believe, they, they picked the FX3 because it's super small and nimble and it creates an image that is really close to the Sony Venice, which a bunch of movies are shot on. In fact, Danny Gewurz used the FX3 and mixed it in with his Sony Venice footage for his newest movie called I Think I'm Sick. And the FX3 is a great little camera. A lot of people don't like it because it lacks a lot of cinema camera features, but honestly, the FX3 is amazing. It's something that a lot of people might not know, and I know this just because I've been watching YouTube videos about filmmaking for over a decade now, but Gareth Edwards actually made another movie in like the mid 2000s, it's called Monsters, and you can see a behind the scenes featurette on that movie, and Gareth Edwards filmed a lot of it himself with a Sony EX3. Not an FX3, an EX3. And he filmed that entire movie. The EX3 is an HD camcorder. It's like an ENG style camcorder. And he had a depth of field adapter on it. And then he put like some Nikon lenses on it. And he filmed this entire movie that you can actually watch on Netflix on a Sony HD camcorder with a depth of field adapter. And it's an amazing movie. Like the guy that starred in it, he's been in a bunch of stuff since then. But like Gareth Edwards, he knew that like the story was most important and he knew that he could utilize new technology, which the Sony EX3... And, you know, like these depth of field adapters were new technology at that point. And he utilized it and he made a movie with it, which I think is awesome. And now it's cool to see him, what is it, like 10 or 12, 15 years later, doing that exact same thing with a bigger budget movie, the creator, shooting it on the Sony FX3, which I just think is really, really cool. Have you tested the FX30? 
No, I haven't. I've held one in my hands because my buddy had one. I met up with him at a coffee shop and he had the FX30 and it was like, it looked just like an FX3, just like a little small version of it. And honestly, like that seems like a really good camera to get. Like it's not a huge sensor, so I don't have to like invest in huge lenses. And the FX30, you can put that new Sigma 18 to 55 F2.8 constant on it. Boom, it's like a perfect tiny little cinema camera. That just seems perfect for me. So I could actually see myself getting that camera and then, you know, maybe just like a cheap Sony a6000 as my B cam, you know, just to like, you know, take photos and stuff with, or maybe like a ZV-E1. But yeah, the FX30 sick. And I could totally see myself getting that. But for now, GH3 is where I'm at. That is all the questions for June. Thank you all so much. I just want to say like genuinely, if no one listened to this podcast, I would not be doing it. And the fact that you tune in and you listen to this this crusty old podcast that I have, just really just, it gets me so stoked. And I'm so appreciative of everyone that tunes in and listens to me ramble about camera stuff it is just really rad so yeah thank you so much for listening to this episode of the longest podcast i might have another episode with a guest on this month i'll have to get back to you but on june 25th i begin my road trip back to oregon so yeah i'm stoked for that i'm stoked to be back in the northwest have my own office again and just kind of get back on the grind of making consistent youtube videos and hopefully stuff that you guys all like to watch anyways once again thanks for listening i'll catch you all next time later